Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Okay, the phrase jack of all trades, master of none, does not apply to Dory Clark. Dory, you are a wonder. I mean, you've worked on presidential campaigns. You founded your own company. You've produced a multiple Grammy-winning jazz album. You're working on a script that, knowing your track record, will debut on Broadway in 2026 or earlier. You're a teacher. You've written four books, and your latest, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, was released in September. It's a Wall Street Journal bestseller, of course. And in a world where instant gratification is so sought after, you emphasize the importance of doing small things over time to achieve your goals and being willing to keep at them, even when they seem pointless, boring, or hard. I mean, so much of that is true. And despite all the pivots your career has taken, the common thread that runs throughout all of your work is you help individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowded, noisy world. And boy, our world could not be more crowded or noisy than it is right now. The New York Times has described you as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. And of course, you write for the Harvard Business Review. You've been featured and quoted everywhere, including NPR, BBC, MSNBC. And you're one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. And you are regarded as the number one communication coach in the world at the Marshall Goldsmith Coaching Awards. So I have to say, as someone who has followed your career for a very long time, I am truly honored to have you on Leave Your Mark. And everyone who's listening, you are really lucky to be listening to this podcast because Dory is beyond inspirational and brilliant. So welcome, Dory. Oh my goodness. That was quite the intro. I appreciate it, Aliza, and I'm so glad to be here. Oh my God. Well, like I said, super honored to have you. Let's talk about you growing up. I mean, I'm sure you could not imagine that you would be the number one communication coach in the world, being that you went in a totally different direction as you started out. So give us some background. Yeah, I would be glad to. I grew up in a small town in North Carolina called Pinehurst. It is a famous golf resort. And so my 
key adolescent rebellion was refusing to golf. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. Thank you. You know, you got to stand for something in this world. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. So for me, it wasn't not golfing. And I just really tried to find a way to get out of there as soon as I could to greener pastures where things were actually happening. Although it's hard to be greener than a golf course, I'll admit. That is true. That is true. (laughs) Yeah. So I left home at 14 and went to college and uh, did college early so I could just get on with it. Okay. You're being super modest right now. But at 14, you went into Mary Baldwin College's program for the exceptionally gifted, correct? That's what they call it. Yeah. Okay. So yes, we're dealing with an exceptionally gifted person. In case... Those of you who are listening didn't catch that from the bio that I said before. And then you went on to attend Harvard Divinity School. I did. So what was the plan? You know, the plan largely was to just go into academia. I loved school. I was pretty good at it. And it was so interesting and fun. And I admired my professors so much. So I thought that I would just kind of keep going, you know, run the boards. So I got my master's degree at Harvard Divinity School. And I decided that my plan was I would get a doctorate in English literature and I would study the intersection of literature and religion. And I thought this sounded like a cool idea. Uh, But unfortunately, the places that I applied to did not agree. And so I got turned down by all of the places that I applied to for doctoral work. And I had to come up with another plan really fast. Those people must be kicking themselves now. I mean... (laughs) They should give you an honorary. So you decided to move into politics. Not immediately. Okay. But yes, I worked as a reporter for a year because I basically was thinking, what is another job where I can read and write a lot and uh, ask big questions? And I thought, okay, I could be a reporter. So I got a job and I did that. I was happy as a reporter. I probably would have continued on that path, but I was hitting a lot of roadblocks in my 20s. And so after about a year doing this, I ended up getting laid off from my job. And it was incredibly hard, you know, pretty much impossible for me to find another job as a journalist. I looked around, I tried, I applied places, but uh, nobody was hiring, you know, because journalism was collapsing. (laughs) So I had been a political reporter. And so therefore, I kind of was forced, quote unquote, to switch into politics. That was the other thing that I knew about. Uh, So I became a spokesperson on first a governor's race, which lost, and then a presidential race, which also lost. Well, still incredible experience. It was. It was good. In general, what factors and perspectives do you advise people to take into account when they're forced to make these massive, big career changes? Well, I think that the key, as I see it, you know, in my first book, actually, was kind of, you know, all these things inspired it. It was uh, called Reinventing You, and it's about how to reinvent yourself professionally. And I think my biggest advice, which comes from my own experience and then interviewing dozens and dozens of people who were successful career changers, ultimately, if you're making a big career change, the number one thing you can do is try to make it not big. So meaning, look for the Venn diagram, look for the overlap between the thing that you're doing now and the thing that you want to do. And use that as a way of building your network. And also especially telling your story about your transition. Because one of the most crucial things is that people are just not going to get it. They're not 
spending a lot of time thinking about you and your transition. And so if it is not immediately self-evident, they're probably going to be very confused or dismissive or something like that. So we have to take control of the narrative and telling that story. And the Venn diagram helps us do it because it, it shows... Okay, well, you know, I may not have done this before, but I did this other thing. And there's, you know, lots of overlap and it relates in X, Y, and Z way. And once you can do that, people most often will say, oh, okay. And then they, you know, it's not like they're going to question you that much. They just want to hear something. They just want to understand. Is that like the top sort of one or two lines of a resume to be able to fill in the holes? Or where does that show up? Yeah, I get it when you already have the interview, like you can explain it. But what do you think? Yeah, I think it's cover letter material. I think it is material for the, you know, about me section in LinkedIn. And it's your elevator pitch to people. You know, of course, if you're meeting them in the context, if you already have a new job, then that's fine. But if you're in transition and you need to somehow explain oh, well, you know, I was a helicopter pilot, but now I want to be a marketing executive. People are just not going to be able to put those two pieces together. They are not clever enough and they don't care enough about you. (laughs) So we need to do the work for them. Dory, I think that you are the only person who's talking about a long anything. I feel like everything in our world right now is like, instant gratification, social media, two-second attention span. What inspired you to really go after this concept of the long game and really sort of preaching this mentality to people? Well, it really came out of working with my clients. And I would be talking to them in our meetings. You know, these are executive coaching clients. And when I would talk to them, I always felt like the Grinch because every two weeks I talk to them and they'd give me their update and then they'd say, so what now? What next? What should I be doing? What's the thing I should be doing now? And my answer like 99 times out of 100 was, do the thing we talked about before. Just keep doing that thing. <laughs> and, and I think it was very sad for them because they wanted to do a new thing. It's very exciting to do a new thing. And a part of us, even if we don't really want to admit it, a part of us feels like the new thing is going to be the thing that works. The new thing is going to be the magic bullet. Even if we, you know, consciously believe there's not a magic bullet, subconsciously we want there to be a magic bullet. And I just had to counsel them, look, the thing that's going to be the magic bullet is often a slower bullet than we'd like. (laughs) And it's just keeping on doing the thing. I want to talk about your raindrops analogy, because when I read this, looking for raindrops, I actually had like, I think a physical reaction because I was like, that is the most brilliant thing I've like possibly ever heard. So tell everyone what that is. I really related to this big time. Well, that is high praise. Thank you so much. So in the long game, uh, as you mentioned, I talk about looking for the raindrops, which is something that I often talk with my clients about. And the basic idea is for sometimes very long periods of time when you are working towards something, you are not going to see any external result. The external results are usually the lagging indicators. I mean, sometimes it takes months, sometimes it takes years, depending on what you're attempting to do. 
And of course, during that period of time, a lot of people, including rational people, say, eh, it's not working. I'm going to give up. But the truth is, it might be working. It's just sometimes not visible underneath the surface. So what I suggest is that we need to look for the raindrops, meaning the very small, very subtle, very easy to miss signs of progress, because they are there. It's just they're often so subtle that they get dismissed or overlooked. Um, when we think about a rainstorm, it's almost never that, you know, big thunderstorm happens out of nowhere, right? Like, oh, where'd that come from? You see the clouds forming. You feel the drops. And when you first feel them, you kind of wonder, like, wait, was that a drop? Like, you're looking around and asking your friends, like, was totally. that just an air conditioner? <laughs> but you look for the drops and you realize, oh, oh, the rainstorm is coming. It's not here yet, but it's on its way. I love this concept so much because I do think all of us, like we're working on so many different projects. People have side hustles, people have passions and like it takes a lot of energy, all these extra things, right? To really try to pursue what you're really interested in. And I think, you know, sometimes you do need that extra motivator to make you continue to push forward. So I think that's brilliant. Talk to us about 20% time. Yeah. So 20% time is a concept that Google popularized. It was originally invented by 3M, who had it as 15% time. Uh, but Google, especially when they went public, it, it became sort of a thing that people talked about. And I think it's, it's a pretty smart thing. The concept is that they allow... And encourage, in fact, their employees to spend up to 20% of their time working on essentially speculative projects outside the purview of their normal job responsibilities. And I wanted, with the long game, to actually encourage individuals to take this on for themselves. Because if we think about 20% time in our lives, it gives us the kind of diversification of risk that, number one enables us to just be smarter and be better prepared for whatever is coming down the pike. You know, everybody knows when it comes to investing that you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. But in our lives, so often we do that. We put all our time, all our energy into one job or one career. And having some side bets about different things that we're exploring or learning about can be really valuable, both as a way of mitigating risk and also capturing potential upside. And 20% is a pretty good number, right? Even if it turns out, you know what, eh, it came to nothing. Well, nobody's going to go bankrupt if you're spending 20% of your time or your effort on something that didn't work out. It's too bad, but it's not the end of the world. But conversely, if it actually turns out to be something good, 20% of your time you spend that, you know, over a period of a few years, that can actually turn into something and it gives you optionality. So smart. I think, you know, some people are really clear about what they're passionate about and other people are a little bit all over the place. They can't really put their finger on it. They're not really sure. They maybe like a couple different things. How would you coach your clients into really having focus and direction to sort of put that energy in one way or another. So when it comes to where to allocate our energy, sometimes we get caught up 
and, and paralyzed even about questions of how we're going to do something or am I picking the right thing or the wrong thing? And one of the key messages for me of the long game is really just that I want to lower the stakes for people. You know, people say, oh my God, but what if I pick the wrong goal? And my answer is, like, who cares? You can change your goal. It's okay. You know, like we pick the wrong goal all the time. We pick all kinds of wrong things. You know, the key is to try to discover that it's the wrong thing as soon as you can, right? True. It's a bad thing to marry the wrong person. It's not necessarily a bad thing to go on a few dates with the wrong person, right? You know, how are you going to find the right person if you don't keep doing that? And so similarly, with our goals, you create a hypothesis, you try to make the smallest bet possible to test it. And then if it doesn't work, fine, pivot, do something else. You probably learn something. You say, okay, well, I like this part. I don't like that part. And it enables you to refine what you're looking for until you actually get more clarity. Such great advice. How do you personally deal with balance? You do so many things. You have such a robust career, writing, speaking, podcasting, TV, all the things. When does Dory time happen that is nothing to do with all of the other stuff? Well, I find ways to carve things out. I mean, I think the key element here is you have to be very aggressive. You have to be very aggressive about carving things out because if you don't, the path of least resistance is always to just cave into doing more work or more of what other people want or need you to do. And so you have to really defend those parameters. For instance, one thing that I started last year, I actually wrote about this for Fast Company, is taking Fridays off. And I decided... You know, I was working like a maniac during the early part of COVID and I kind of just worked myself into a frenzy and I realized like, oh my God, this is not sustainable. So shortly after I turned in the manuscript for the long game, I said, you know what, now's the time to do something different. So starting last September, I inaugurated Fridays off and I put that on hiatus for, you know, about a month uh, during the book launch. But I, I started it up again because I realized, you know, that's something that you do need to protect. And you know, what do I do on a Friday off? Well, uh, some of the things are, you know, kind of self-care things like doctor's appointments and what have you. I also take ping pong lessons. And so for the past year, I've done uh, almost every week ping pong lessons. And I also frequently will go, now that it's reopened, to the theater on film and tape archive and we'll go to that in New York and watch musicals. So that's uh, that's kind of how I spend time. Why ping pong? Well, you know, during COVID, when everything was closed, right, gyms and all kinds of things, um, I was taking long walks, and that was the only kind of exercise I could get. And in my long walks, I discovered a ping pong studio. It was like a mirage. It was like, oh my God, this amazing two floor ping pong studio had miraculously opened. And it was about a, you know, 25 minute walk from my house. And I thought, that's fantastic. And I saw the big sign, you know, they, they had good branding. And it was like, we have lessons. And I'm like, that's what I need. I need <laughs> ping pong lessons. So I just decided to sign up because it was a fun thing. And it seemed like you know, like a me thing. Like, yeah, that sounds like a badass thing. I'd, I'd like to do that. Oh, my God. I feel like I was just watching a movie of you when you described that. Like, I pictured the scene totally. <laughs> so funny. 
so this is part of your don't burn out plan then the Fridays, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, above and beyond that, I mean, Fridays off is helpful as kind of a, you know, yeah. a release valve. But also, as you can imagine, during the launch of the long game, I have been working a lot to get the book launched. So I baked this in from the beginning, I, you know, for over a year, I've been planning this, I knew that this was going to be a stressful time. And so I have declared January and February of 2022 to be what I call quasi sabbatical time. I'm not eschewing all work, but I am eschewing all discretionary work. And so not taking on all the things you might do, you know, it's like, oh, a networking call, oh, a podcast, you know, anything that is not a specific paid client engagement is going out the window and being pushed back. And so I am essentially dropping my workload by about 90% during that period. So I'm looking forward to a much more relaxing time and just being able to uh, rebalance and recalibrate my portfolio, as it were. So basically by March, you're going to be like on the Olympic ping pong team. <laughs> I, I think probably, yes. <laughs> That's amazing. What was the hardest thing about starting your own company and what was the most surprising? The hardest thing about starting my own company, I think it's one of the best things really, but it, it is it is this gauntlet, this kind of personal gauntlet, because you have to really cross-train. When you're an employee, you can get away with, I say in air quotes, just essentially doing the thing you're good at. You're like, oh, you're good at that? Then that's going to be your job. And that is efficient if you have a large enterprise. But frankly, it's kind of easy for us because we can get away with leaning on our strengths and never really confronting the things we're bad at. In entrepreneurship, and I have a lot of clients, you know, coaching clients that I work with or, you know, people who are part of my online uh, recognized expert community that I see. And a lot of times if they're having trouble in their business, it often really is because there are things that they just don't want to do or things they just don't want to face. And, you know, maybe it's, you know, they're hesitant to quote unquote, put themselves out there, or maybe they've never been good at organization or, you know, whatever it is. But oftentimes it really is ourselves holding ourselves back. And in order to become the kind of entrepreneur that you need to be in order to be successful, it requires facing parts of ourselves and getting better at those things and being willing to do that process. Yeah, I think, you know, the self-reflective nature of that. I mean, I think sometimes people just don't even want to see it at all. Yeah. So for sure. What's the most surprising thing or something that you were like, wow, I didn't even see that coming. And I actually like love it. <laughs> well, the most surprising thing about having my own business, I mean, this is something that I hoped for, I guess, but it really is dramatic to me when you have the ability to have your income directly correlated to the work that you're doing. I feel like for so many people, those things are not correlated. I mean, your value, let's say as a teacher to society is enormous, but you know, you don't get paid millions of dollars. You get paid what you get paid, but you know, it's very rare, I think, to have a profession where you get paid based on 
you know, how good are you at being able to do your thing and sell your thing? And I could feel myself as I was getting better, I was getting more successful. And so that feedback loop was very uh, rewarding. That makes perfect sense. When it comes to communication, I mean, you're the number one communications coach in the world. That's like insane, by the way. And you're on Leave Your Mark, which makes you really proud. Um, what do you think is the biggest mistake people make in trying to tell their story or trying to break through? I think, honestly, the biggest mistake when it comes to people telling their story is that is that they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning they assume that it will take care of itself, that they don't have to do it. They don't have to really consciously craft a narrative like, oh, well, you know, people will figure it out. People know me. They'll get it. And the answer is no, they absolutely won't. I mean, it seems like a drum I'm always beating, but people are too busy to care about you. They're too busy to care about me. Like they don't notice. They forget that, you know, I mean, it's not that they're mean and it's not that they're out to get you. It's that they're just too busy with their own stuff. So they're not going to pay attention. They're not going to notice. And so unless we literally just tee everything up and put it on a platter for them, it's not going to get heard. And so we have to be willing to do the work. But some people don't want to do the work because they're too shy and it feels weird. And some people don't want to do the work because actually, even though they wouldn't couch it this way, it's kind of a form of arrogance. Because it's like, well, I shouldn't have to do that. It, you know, my work should speak for itself because I do good work. And it might feel like purity, but it's actually entitlement. The answer is, I don't care how good your work is. Everyone has to take control of doing this. This is part of the responsibility of being a human in the world now. Wow, that was so well said. And switching gears for a second, because I think everything that you're saying is so valuable. And also, in a way, like, People, I think, who are listening to this eventually will be like, that also makes so much sense. Like, but you just need someone to tell you that. You teach, I don't even know when you teach, probably in your sleep, but you teach at Duke and you teach at Columbia Business School. <laughs> How do your students inspire you? So I do executive education. So I'm working with professionals. These are not people seeking MBAs. These are professionals who are coming in for additional training. And it's actually very inspiring for me because in general, just the fact that people who want to get better at things, I think that's very inspiring. You know, anyone <laughs> for me who raises their hands and says, yeah, I want to do self-development. I'm not done learning. There are ways that I can continue to improve. I think that that is so powerful and it's the right kind of humility for all of us. You know, I mean, a lot of these people have gotten to be really quite successful. You know, you're operating with people who are often senior leaders and they still are modeling for their people. They're saying, no, you know, I don't know it all. I, you know, I can get better at things. And it's true for all of us. We have the term in psychology is asynchronous development. <laughs> so, you know, you might be great at some things, but you're not great at everything. I'm pretty sure. And so being willing to, uh, to own that and feel comfortable with that, I think is, is really great. For sure. Has there ever been a time in your career where you stopped yourself and you thought, I don't know if this is the right path. And then you sort of talked yourself back into it. 
<laughs> oh boy. Um, you know, when it comes to my career, I sort of walk the talk about trying to take very minimal risks. I mean, people often think that entrepreneurship is all about taking risks, but on the contrary, I think that entrepreneurship is about risk mitigation. And so I honestly don't worry too much because I'm placing lots of, you know, just small bets, right? I mean, when I even went to work for myself, a problem that a lot of people have, frankly, is that the job they've had before being an entrepreneur was so lucrative that anything else perils in comparison. They're like, well, how can I make, you know, $800,000 a year as an entrepreneur? And I'm like, well, you know, you, it'll take you a while. <laughs> like, let's be honest. Yeah, for sure. And uh, when I started as an entrepreneur 15 years ago, uh, I was making $45,000 a year as a nonprofit executive. And the year before, I was making $36,000. Uh, my organization gave me a raise. And I was like, I pretty much didn't even want the raise because I had to raise the raise. Like, I was responsible for raising all of the money that paid me and that paid everyone else in the organization. I was like, oh, my God, it was so much stress. And so I realized, like, hey, low enough bar, right? I'm like, okay, whatever I'm doing I am pretty sure I can somehow find a way to make this much money. And if I can do it on my own without the existential stress of an entire organization on my shoulders, I would feel great. That would be, you know, all downhill from there, like, you know, just smooth sailing. So I, I started from my low bar uh, of revenue and uh, it's <laughs> it, thankfully it has gone up substantially uh, since then. Well, your lowest was more than my lowest. My lowest was 23000 Oh, yeah. What were you doing? I was the assistant accessories editor at Mary Claire Magazine. Oh, so, publishing. Publishing. Well, I, I made 20... It was either 26 or 28, but I think it was 26 a year when I was a reporter. <laughs> there you go. But did you get free shoes? Probably not. I did. Can't pay rent with shoes, though. That's a fun fact. I wanted to tell everyone to check out your site, doryclark.com. And I think one of the things on your site that I want to point out is the about page. And of course, I read your bio before everyone heard it and it's incredible. But I love this paragraph because after you share your bio, you say, but it wasn't always that way. I had three book proposals rejected before I published my first book. In my 20s, I was turned down by every doctoral program I applied to. And now I teach for some of the best business schools in the world. And when I was starting out as a consultant, my entreaties to blog for free for top publications were met with silence. They didn't even have the courtesy to respond. I broke through and have been able to reinvent myself and build a meaningful, exciting, and lucrative career. I've learned a lot along the path, and now I look forward to helping you do the same. I love this because to me, this is also a testament to who you are as a person because I think you know a lot of people, when they see people like you and just uber successful people, in a way, it can be like even depressing because you're just like, that person is so accomplished and I'm so not accomplished. And how do I even get there? Like I can never get there. And I love the transparency that you put out there because that's so real. And like, look at you now. It's amazing. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Aliza. So Dory, last question. 
always the same. How do you want to leave your mark? Yes. Well, the passage that you read, I think, kind of ties into it. For me, it really is meaningful to be able to help other people and facilitate them sharing their ideas. The things that I figured out and was forced to figure out when I started my business in order to get business, you know, I knew that I would have to do something to distinguish myself in the marketplace and get noticed and attract clients and things like that. And I, I really wasn't sure how to do it. And I had to figure out that process. And I think as is often the case when something is a little bit hard fought, you really think about it a lot. And you, uh, in my case, you create a framework. You really come to understand what that process is like. And it is very gratifying for me because I know how, how frustrating it was, how opaque it felt. It's very gratifying for me to help other people navigate it because I, I didn't feel like there was a, a really good resource or a really good path for it. And so my ability to help other, you know, good, smart people get their ideas out there that deserve to be out there is something that's, that's very satisfying for me. Wonderful. And I just want to review all of the books. So it's Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, obviously the long game. And then the fourth one is... Stand Out. Stand Out. How to stand out. Oh, give us just... I know I said last question, but I lied. Give us like two seconds on Stand Out. Yeah. Well, the subtitle for Stand Out is How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. And at a really basic level, the way I describe it is it's a book about how to become a recognized expert in your company or in your field. Oh, that's so good. Dory, I don't understand where you get all of your inspo from, but I just hope it keeps coming because what you're putting out into the world is so incredibly important and useful. And any single person at any age can just pick up any one of these books and just apply your advice. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I'll just mention too, Eliza, that if anyone's interested in a strategic thinking self-assessment, you know, actually um, really thinking deeply about how to apply these concepts of strategic planning to your life and your career, I have a free resource. It's uh, the Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment and folks can get it at doryclark.com slash the long game. I am so glad that you said that because I saw it and I'm totally going to take that self-assessment. So thank you for sharing that. And Dory, thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. I have been honored to share a stage with you, Elisa. Oh. So it's so nice to be back on here with you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Eliza Lick Dexo. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Eliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to ElisaLick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.